You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. I will talk about Genesis 28 again today, verses 10 through 22, and I've called it this uh, portion of it, the house of God. And I am, um, actually I spoke on the 16th, two Sundays ago, on the same portion and called it Jacob's Awakening. And I am just enthralled with this portion. I have been here for a while. And when I think about Jacob, Jacob is such, um, well, the word came to me, uh, an enigmatic figure or character, and that means, I looked it up just to be sure, um, difficult, difficult to understand. And to me, Jacob is um, like a pro, the prototypical man. Uh, humanity, if you want to, if you want to put it that way, and um, he was so, so complicated. I've just made a list of things I was thinking about a minute ago about Jacob, how Jacob swindled Esau, um, and then how immediately thereafter God reveals Himself to Jacob with no rebuke, no mention of what he had done both lying to his father and tricking his brother. But here's what you have to recognize. Nobody gets away with anything. Repeat after me. Nobody, you know, it's okay. Because God revealed himself to Jacob on his way to work for his uncle Laban, who swindled Jacob. Actually, he... Jacob made a deal with Laban to work seven years for Rachel and um, must have gotten married in the dark because the next morning he woke up with the other sister instead of the one he thought he was marrying. And if that's not enigmatic, go get your own definition. I just uh, so, But Laban swindles him, and I bet Jacob woke up that morning and thought, who could do something like this to another relative? <laughs> Come on, that's really good right there. But And then he works another seven years for, for Rachel because he got Leah first. He wanted Rachel. He got Leah. And then Jacob tricks Laban. And then Jacob decides to leave and go home. And to go home, he's going to have to face his brother that uh, 14 years earlier wanted to kill him for cheating him. And so then Jacob wrestles with an angel or with the Lord or whoever that was at the Fort Jabbok before he crosses over to meet his brother. He has some kind of a transformational encounter with the Lord. And I could say he was transformed sort of. How many of you have been transformed sort of? There may be work to do, but nevertheless... Discovering this new creature we become can be quite quite a trick once you've met the Lord. Well, then they're the sons of Jacob, and there's the horrible things they did. Sold Joseph to Egypt. 
Joseph preserves a family, and then they go into 400 years of slavery until God delivers them. And so it's just, what a great story about this man. Just the ups and downs, the ins and outs. And so um, I want us to look at Genesis 28 again, and um, we can read beginning in verse 10. I'll read it. You can read along if you like. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place, and he stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I'm the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, and the south. And in you and in your seed, how many families of the earth shall be blessed, as the Bible say? All the families of the earth shall be blessed. So how could you even understand that promise? You're, you're a cheat, you're a swindler, you run from your brother under the threat of death. I mean, you don't even have a pillow. You're sleeping on a rock. I mean, you've left in a hurry. And so God shows up and says, listen, you idiot. No, he doesn't say anything like that. But remember, there was a Laban down the road. When God decides to deal with you, you get dealt with. That's just all there is to it. You can do whatever you want, but you can escape a lot of relationships, but you can't escape God, okay? That's good news, bad news. So he gives this amazing promise. And then the Lord, uh, then it says in verse 15, the Lord says, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I've spoken, I have spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid. And he said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it, and he called the name of that place Bethel or Bethel. But the name of that city had been Luz previously. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So basically, a little summary of what we just saw here from gotquestions.org. I found this and it was so succinct. While traveling from Beersheba to Haran to escape his brother Esau, Jacob stopped for the night at Lutz 
As he slept, he dreamed of a stairway or a ladder that stretched up from earth to heaven. The angels of God were climbing up and down the ladder as God stood at the top. The Lord spoke and revealed himself to Jacob as the God of his fathers. When Jacob awoke, he declared, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob set up a sacred pillar, named the place Bethel, and consecrated the site as a place to worship God. One of the things that struck me was that just the love of God towards, towards Jacob. Um, God revealed himself to Jacob. And in my way of thinking, he wasn't eligible for that. The kind of life he had lived. Nevertheless, the Lord revealed his acceptance. He revealed his care. And he gave him some most amazing promises. And one of the things I mentioned before is this biblical interpretation um, idea, rule, or principle called the first mentionings principle. And that concludes that the first place a word, a concept, or an idea is mentioned uh, contains in its context significant characteristics of the word. It's a way to begin to understand throughout the Bible uh, meanings. The first mention often contains the most complete and accurate meaning of the word. This serves as a key to understanding the biblical concepts, but it can provide a foundation for its fuller development in later parts. And so we find this phrase, house of God, first mentioned here in Genesis twenty-eight seventeen. This is none other than the house of God and the gate of heaven. It's a very peculiar thing for Jacob to have said in the middle of nowhere. Um, there's got to be... Um, more to it, there's, there's got to be ideas that could only be further developed down the road. And that really is what happened. My theory, and you could argue with it, but from a creative prophetic viewpoint, I find here in Genesis 28 different distinctives that should characterize the church or the house of God or what our Christian experience should contain. I think that's what you begin to see here in Genesis 28. Mentioned earlier, house of God is the earliest reference to God having a specific place or dwelling in the earth. Best to my knowledge, that's true. That idea is further developed through the tabernacle of Moses. Um, that was the structure God revealed to Moses and Israel after they had escaped from Egypt. And then there was David's tabernacle, which was a short-lived but very interesting place. The Ark of the Covenant and the worship of God was centered. Then there was um, at least two other temples, Solomon's temple, and then it was destroyed, and then the second temple. But the reality that God dwells in men and women as the body of Christ is what all of this is pointing to, that the church is people, not a place people meet in a place, but the place we call the church, but it's the people who, who are, and that was God's ultimate dwelling place. And we find, of course, in the scripture, 1 Timothy 3, uh, Paul writes, 
I'll write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. And he wasn't talking about kids not running through the building. He's talking about how you should live as someone in whom God dwells. Um, your morality, your truthfulness, your the conduct, how you behave, how you act, what you say, all those sort of things. How you should conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And then Peter also addresses this. He says, coming to him, coming to Jesus or coming to God as a as to a living stone, he was indeed rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so the first mention of what would develop into what we are today and what we should be today We find there in Genesis 28 when Jacob suddenly realizes where he is and what's there. And so the church, the house of God, should be a place where God reveals himself. Not not just right here listening to preaching, but you should should be having a relationship with the Lord where you get to know him. We need to get to know him corporately, but we need to get to know him uh, individually as well. Um, I like that. A place of revelation, a place where God reveals himself. And, And we see in the language here, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. How awesome is this place? The house of God, the gate of heaven. What in the world? The gate of heaven. Well, I don't know that I'll get that today, to that today, but I will. Let me just give you a little, um, a little idea about the gate of heaven. How many of you are familiar with the 12 thrones connected to the house of Jacob? Okay. Each throne is named after a tribe. Everybody with me so far? Also, in Ezekiel 47 to 48, there are 12 gates to the city, and each gate is named after what? A tribe. But really, it's named after a person. Because the tribal names are the names of an individual person in each case. Everybody with me? Levi, you know. Uh, Simeon, Manasseh. And so when you look at the, both those thrones and those gates, it says this to me, every one of us should be sitting on a throne, which, which that means is you're an overcomer. You're an overcomer. And the gates of that city named after a person means we should be gates of the Lord. We can let God in to our lives, or we can keep God out. How many of you listening to me? Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and what shall happen? The king of glory shall come in, the lifting up of your heads. This is speaking about a revelatory idea where 
your mind goes from natural, carnal, to spiritual in the sense that you begin to understand who God is. You begin to understand who you are. You're a gate. Just like those 12 gates there, it describes in the book of Ezekiel in, in Jerusalem. Each one named after a person. Everyone is a gate. Everyone is a gate. What does it mean? Oh, what does it mean in Matthew when it says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church? It means no evil gate, no evil person. If you know who you are and you know who Jesus is, no access point can disrupt, disturb, or remove you from who you are, who you're called to be. Because gates can be people. Everybody okay with that? That's just an idea I had from different verses. So it's a place of discovery of the kingdom of God. Here we find that in Genesis 28. God is in this place and I did not know it. Think about that idea. God is here where I am and I didn't know it. To me, this is like an early prophetic picture or foreshadowing of what it meant to discover the kingdom of God as Jesus described it. What did he say about the kingdom of God? And we know that it's not here in its entirety, but we know it is here. Jesus didn't actually, I don't know that he brought it. He came to declare that it was here. I'm not going to get too much into this this week either, but Jesus is Jacob's ladder. Jacob's ladder was the access point between heaven and earth. It was described initially right here in Genesis 28. Jesus is Jacob's ladder. He's the connection point. He's the access personality vehicle. I don't know how you want to say it, that whoever believes in him begins, whether they know it or not, begins having access to the realm of the heavens for blessing and benefit and help and aid. But you could have that ladder, you could have that access point and not even know it. God was in this place, Jacob said, and I didn't know it. How many of us have had those times with the Lord where we went, oh my goodness, oh yeah, that's right, God's alive, God's real. I mean, we go in and out. Who can say that? We fade in and out of realization and ignorance. And our lives sort of prove it, don't they? So Jesus preached the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom of God has come upon you. He said, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God in Matthew 12. And then in Luke 17, 21, he says, for the... Indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. He says, but it doesn't come with observation. It comes with participation and revelation, really. Because you can be in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God can be in you and you have absolutely no clue whatsoever about it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the Bible says. He made us alive. He quickened us. He raised us up. He seated us in the heavenly places. Far above, it says, all principalities and powers. That's where you are. You may not know it, but you are. 
Does that make any sense? No, it's a mystery. It might not make that sense at all. A friend of mine told me years ago, well, that's, that's positional Christianity. I said, oh, I said, yeah, but what is that? Well, that's your position in Christ. I said, well, what is that? He never would say, I don't know, because that was his answer. But no, there's a functional participation with the realm of heaven because of the place we've been seated and the reality of God, Christ within us, the hope of glory. But it doesn't come automatically. How many of you are aware many of the promises of God don't automatically transpire? We wish they would, but they don't. Oftentimes, it boils down to relationship with him and actually connection with other people who aid us in our faith. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I'm, I'm just excited about this. Um, so Jesus used the parables about the kingdom. He used natural ideas, but these ideas did two things. They revealed the kingdom and they hid the kingdom. And as I've understood it, when this, when the Bible and when, when God shows us things and we take them to heart and we begin to be obedient or walk in a relationship with God that is obedient, he begins to reveal further things to us. But when we hear things and ignore them, then they become difficult or even impossible to understand. And you can see that in the parable of the sower and the seeds. They're different kinds of soil. Now, the idea, I can't get into all that, but the idea about the different kinds of soil is if your soil's messed up, you could do something about it so that things will grow. But he used treasure hidden in a field. Like I mentioned, seeds sown. It's pictures of the kingdom. The mustard seed, leaven and a loaf of bread, a net cast into the sea. But Jacob said, the Lord is in this place and I knew it not. And I can't get away from this reality that just because we don't know something that it doesn't exist. Just because we can't feel it or see it or taste it, just because heaven doesn't operate the way we think it ought to operate doesn't mean that it doesn't operate. It doesn't mean that it's not available. It doesn't mean that God has much, much more to show us than we have already. And arrogance and presumption and know-it-all and all that kind of stuff does nothing but keep you out of understanding and out of, under, out of uh, knowing the Lord better. God resists the proud. How many of you want God to resist you? Boy, I, I could stand some resistance, but not that one. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. The Bible says that knowledge puffs up. Knowledge puffs up. But charity, grace, love edifies. And that's what, that's what we're called to. What did the Bible say? They'll know we're Christians by our information. Now, when people talk about you, about who you really are and what they know about you, does he, she's loving ever come into that picture or equation? It ought to, right? How many feel bad about what I just said? I feel a little bit bad about it, but we can be challenged, right? Do people know you love them? Yes, there were people here recently. I'm just talking to the Lord. Oh, no, they're back. Okay, I lost you there for a second. 
But Jacob's experience to me speaks volumes of how it is that we can be so unaware of who God is and what he's done for us, done for us. I'll read these verses. I, I, I still scratch my head when I read the Bible. Anybody else like that? You read it and you go, I know that's there. I know that's what he said. But how does this work? Anybody a frustrated Christian? To me, that frustration keeps me looking, keeps me interested. But in Ephesians 1, 3, Paul said, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm has already been lavished upon us. As a love gift from our wonderful heavenly father, for the father of our Lord Jesus, all because he sees us wrapped into Christ. So every heavenly blessing, Paul says, has been given. And says, okay, we're going to get that when we get to heaven. Well, there's something to that, but that's not what he was saying. He was saying all those heavenly blessings have already been lavished, lavished upon us and placed in Christ. Who else is in Christ? We are. Every heavenly blessing. But that's such a challenge. It's a love gift. We can't earn it. Now, there's also this idea about the finished work of Christ. How many of you have heard that term? Or, yeah. And it has to do with the last thing Jesus said on the cross. In John 19, he said, it is finished, which means it's complete or the work's been done. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. And so the idea, the concept, and there's truth to it, is that everything needed to be done as far as our justification and sanctification and all that sort of thing, Jesus did on our behalf once for all. And when he had gone through that entire process, the very last words he said before he died was, it's finished. I did what I was supposed to do. But that has profound implications. It can go all the way back to Ephesians 1 where every spiritual blessing has been lavished upon us. And of course, following the crucifixion, there was his resurrection, which was absolutely essential, his ascension, which was absolutely essential, and as Thomas mentioned a minute ago, the outpouring of the Spirit too, which is absolutely essential. But what I'm really saying today is there is much, much more to God and enjoying him and, and, and knowing him than we realize. But there's a problem. <laughs> um, we also see here in verse 11 that when Jacob came to a certain place, he stayed there all night. Let's say two words together, all night. All night. How long was he there? All night. Why? Because the sun had set. Now, I have a theory that whatever Jacob discovered there, 
because the sun had set, is available wherever the sun sets. That's worth thinking about. But he stayed there all night. And, and sometimes it has to get dark to obtain light. How many of you know that's true? Sometimes we have to go through some things we don't volunteer for to actually begin to see what God's really like and what he's really after. Jacob's life-changing revelation, his encounter with God, began by spending the night in an uncomfortable place. How many of you have ever slept with a rock as a pillow? That can't be good. That's what Jacob was doing. And oftentimes our spiritual advance is directly related to or preceded by difficult, difficult times. And I think about the difficult time we have been through. And I remember something a fellow said one time, and he said, there are only two alternatives. You either get better or you get bitter. And sometimes that seems like the way it is. There's probably a third thing you could do. But we, we need to take to heart the things we come through. But challenging times can really inspire us to pursue God more diligently. Now, one of the problems I have is I don't understand everything. I have known the Lord for a long, long time. I still don't understand how things work exactly. Anybody else felt that way? I don't. I don't. I wish I did. I wish I was the answer man. Me and uh, old Hank Hickenblooper or whatever the guys, Hank, uh, God, uh, Bible answer man. Just give me, you know. I had the Lord tell me as a young Christian, he said, you know all the answers, but you haven't figured out the questions yet. I mean, I could tell anybody how to do something right because I'd read all these books and I read the Bible and I was... But crisis has a way of leveling the playing field. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Suddenly, well, this, this, this is real. This is real. Let me read this out of Hebrews chapter 12. For God is not unjust. Well, that's a great comment, a uh, great idea. For God is not unjust. He will not overlook your work and the love that you showed for the, his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we want each of you to show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope to the very end so that you may not become sluggish, but imitators of those through, who knows the next three words? Faith and patience inherit the promises. How do you inherit promises? Through faith and patience. A friend of mine said, well, you know, there was this faith movement years ago, but they've never heard of a patience movement. That's a good word right there. So I'm assuming you can have faith and still not inherit promises if you don't have patience. I have some unfulfilled promises. Anybody else got any? Some of them are 30 and 40 years old. 
And I simply don't like it. <laughs> However, it is what it is. You know, whether you like something or don't like something doesn't really affect what it is. <laughs> Have you ever realized that? But anyway, I've had... Um, I have those some unfulfilled promises. And I, I don't know exactly why, but I was in a hotel room one day. I bought a car a number of years ago, and I bought it out of, down in Columbia, and I took it down there, and they had to do some work. They couldn't get the work done to the next day, so I just stayed in this hotel overnight. And I spent that day asking the Lord why he had not fulfilled these promises. Anybody ever prayed that or asked that question? Why? And I don't have a complete answer, but I have part of one. Who's interested in part of an answer? Maybe not the full answer, but at least part of one. So I was praying and I was asking this, the Lord this, and I saw a vision or a picture in my mind of a big scoop up in heaven pouring out raisins. I mean, just pouring out raisins. And at first I thought, well, that's stupid. That doesn't make any sense. But has anything ever like that happened to you? You couldn't shake and you started thinking, well, maybe there's more to this than what I've originally recognized. And so I began to ask the Lord about it and I went through a little bit of a, a process about it. And where do raisins come from? Well, they come from grapes. And grapes can represent a promise. Well, how do I get that? Well, after Israel escaped from Egypt and began to see the promised land, they sent spies into the promised land. And in the promised land, they saw two things in particular. You remember the 12 spies? They saw fruit and giants, and one they liked and the other they didn't. And so when they returned from spying out the promised land, that's what it's called, the land God promised, they brought back grapes as a proof of its abundant fruitfulness of the promise the promised land held for a nation who had been wilderness wanderers and slaves. And they were called the grapes of a place called Eshkol. And the grapes of Eshkol were so large, I imagine them like this, which who knows why, or it's probably not, but I'm thinking. But they were so large that one bunch of grapes required two men to carry one bunch on a pole. And so grapes can become synonymous with the promised land and are a classic picture of a promise. Now, raisins. What are raisins? Dried up grapes. I've seen a lot of paintings of grapes. I don't think I've ever seen a painting of a raisin. Ugly raisin. They don't look near as good as plump. Oh, plump. Gosh, juicy grapes, glistening, dripping. <clears throat> Gosh, grapes. 
But raisins fulfill a different purpose. In the ancient world, they sustained soldiers in times of war or travelers needing nutrition, the kind of nutrition that wouldn't perish. And grapes last a short time, but raisins can sustain people in dry, difficult circumstances over the long haul. You could even say this, promises come like grapes, but they're fulfilled like raisins. Somebody listening. Promises come like what? Grapes. Oh, oh, my goodness. What a promise. Juicy, plump promise. But what happens to it? They shrivel up. They look dry and hard. I don't even like raisins. But remember, there is a spiritual principle that sometimes between the promise and the promised land, there's a desert to cross. And I think oftentimes things aren't really test. It's just you get the promise because God knows what's coming up and the timing isn't right for the fulfillment, but you've got to make it to that place of fulfillment. And that's what a promise does. It can sustain us when it looks like it's not even true. When God gives us the promise, who knows what lies between the time he gives it and its fulfillment. That's why he gave us the promise. That's what the promise is supposed to do. What is it, uh, Joseph's promise? This is, this is a wonderful and an awful verse. How many of you understand something can be both at the same time? It says uh, in Psalm 105:19, until the time that Joseph's word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. And sometimes promises test us as well as nourish us until God does what he's actually said he's going to do. It's just you need to know he actually said something. Do you know what I'm saying? That you actually have that promise. But I did make a note here. You can't control God. Let's say that together. You can't control, you can't control God. We serve Him. I can understand questioning God. I understand that. That's obviously something we all do. But then there's a place where he's just God. Do you understand? He's, he's just God. And you may or may not like some things about him. I don't know. But he's God. That's a challenge. I mean, if I was coming up for a way to save people, I don't think I would have sent my favorite one and only, to do what they did to Jesus. But you know, God knows things we don't. I have a feeling there are aspects to the gospel that we will maybe never fully understand, but certainly won't understand completely until 
Jesus comes back or we go to heaven or however that's going to happen for whoever it is we're thinking about. But there is a place where he's God. And we can question him. I think that's healthy. But we serve him. Can we hear that this morning? He came and served us. Jesus knew how to serve people. But we're called to give him everything we are. Okay, I think I'm going to stop right there this morning. Everybody okay? Yeah. God is in this place. Look at somebody. God is in this place. Let's, let's, um, why don't we stand together and pray? I don't know, Thomas. I, I think I'll close today, Thomas, okay? Paul actually prayed for us. I say that because he prayed it in the scripture and sent the letter to the church, and now we have the letter. He prayed that God would enlighten us, that he would open the eyes of our hearts to understand and to see his inheritance in the saints. So, Father, I believe your house is a place of revelation. And we pray this morning, Lord, we really do want to know you. We do want to know you better. We want to be better followers of you. And so we ask that you would open our eyes, Lord, that you would help us um, in every way walk in the light, walk in the truth, walk in grace, be recipients and dispensers of your mercy and your kindness and your favor. Lord, you're good. You're good. We acknowledge today that you're a good God, and we thank you, oh, my goodness, for all that you've done for us, even the things we don't even yet see. Thank you for looking after us over this last year plus in particular. Thank you for preserving our lives. God, we we bless those who lost friends and relatives. We ask that your comfort, the great comfort of the Holy Ghost, the comfort of the Spirit of God would touch, uh, Lord, every broken heart, every confused person, every hurt person, and bring us into that place, Lord, of confidence and joy and devotion. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. 